Welcome to Sulphur Springs Baptist Church Sermon Audio. For more information, please visit our website at sulphurspringsbc.com. Words about meditation. Uh, I do think that, uh, I think the way you said it, sometimes quietness is even sometimes awkward for us. Our world has become so loud and uh, some people would say they don't like quietness. They'd, if they're sitting there even reading their Bible, they'd rather have the TV on in the background or whatever. They like just noise. Um, but I think if you read in Scripture, you'll see over and over, especially in the Psalms, the writers talking about meditating on the Word of the Lord and on His, His truth. And I do think that is uh, something we fail in doing like we should. And I challenge you, and, and His words challenge me to do more, to be more intentional about meditating on the Scripture. Maybe on your ride to work, you cut your radio off and just, just think over what you read, hopefully, that morning, your devotion or your Scripture you read. And I've learned in my life the times I have meditated to the Lord has put a passage of Scripture on my heart that has... You just you just consumes your mind. That's that's fruitful times and that's blessed times and encouraged times. And so, I appreciate Pastor James's words and the way they they stuck with me. I do think meditation is powerful for our lives. And again, a scriptural practice that you'll see referred to many times in the Psalms. And uh, something I promise you, I'm sure David would have said the same even when he wrote. But in our day, especially. You're going to have to be intentional about that. It's not just going to happen. But like I said, it may be you cut your radio off driving to work just to think it over. Or um, however your process might be to, to make your mind to go to the Scriptures. Because if not, there will be a million other things that, that take your attention. And uh, just challenge you with that this morning. Um, this For our text today, if you have your Bible, we're going to continue looking in Acts 16. Acts 16, as I mentioned as we prepare for our study in Philippians, Acts 16, the reason we're there, uh, to just remind you again, is because that's just where the church was born. And in fact, where we're reading, Paul is still in Philippi, uh, the place where the church was. And these verses of Scripture, and then what we'll look at, uh, of course, Lucas will be here with us next Sunday morning, but as we'll continue on, uh, the conversion of the Philippian jailer, a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. And I think even this morning, the final verse we'll read is a passage that um, many could tell you about, many have heard about, and even um, the focus probably of many Sunday school lessons, many Bible school lessons for young children. Um, but it just reminds you it happened in Philippi. And I hope the point of all this is to help the church at Philippi come to life for you, to help you see the connectivity, connection and uh, the connected nature of the Bible. It's not just random stuff, but it's, it's a story that happened, of course, it's true and, and factual, but it's, it's real. I hope it just brings it all to life for you as it does for me. But anyway, Acts chapter number 16, and uh, we'll begin reading in verse number 16 as well. If you will, I'll ask you to stand as we read these verses of Scripture in honor and reverence to the Word of the Lord. And here the Bible says, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains were, was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers, and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes, and commanded 
to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into the prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And this is the verse I was referring to that so many people uh, remember so, so vividly sticks in our minds. And at midnight it says, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Lord, we thank you today for just the opportunity to be here. Thank you for our church family. Thank you for the encouragement we received by being here, the help we receive in being here. And God, I pray that as we join together, Lord, we're not just here to, uh, to talk about our weeks. We're not just here to talk about what lies ahead next week. We're not just here to fellowship. But Lord, help us to remember we're here to worship you. We're here to congregate in the name of our Savior and magnify you, to exalt your name and to glorify you. And I pray that we do that this morning. I pray that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth as your word teaches us to do. And God, I pray that our worship comes from our heart and all true worship must, Lord. That we're not just going through the motions, we're not just saying the right words and doing the right things. But Lord, we truly have a sense of your awe and your wonder and your majesty, God, from deep within who we are. And uh, Lord, I pray that you'd help your word this morning to go forth in power and uh, Lord, to impact and change lives, God. I'm thankful it has that. Uh, you have chosen to use your word to do that, to bring about life change, to transform people. And God, I pray that you do that this morning. And if there's somebody here that's lost, Lord, I pray for their salvation as uh, the following verses of this chapter read, God, there's a Philippian jailer who, who was saved, God, who called upon the name of the Lord. And I pray today that if someone's here that's lost, God, that they might call upon your name. And I'm thankful you will in no wise cast them out. But Lord, we pray that you just press your word home to our heart, Lord, so it's not going in one ear and out the other. But use your word today to uh, leave its imprint upon our life. Father, we thank you and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for standing this morning. You can be seated. Uh, when I begin this morning by asking you, do you know what it is to be around someone that excels so much at something that it inspires you? Uh, you become amazed at their ability to do whatever the task is and almost ashamed or frustrated at your inability to do that same task or that same activity. And this happened to me, and I'm going somewhere with all this, but this happened to me one time, and I may have shared this in a different, as a different means of uh, leading into a thought or a point, but uh, when Brianna made me go skiing, I told her before we went she'd wanted to go, and she'd been before and, and was pretty, is pretty good at it. Uh, I'd never been, but I told her uh, that I was not athletic enough to do that, and I didn't really particularly want to go, but her being the supportive wife that she is talked me into it and said, well, you played sports, you'll be able to do it, and uh, I've never been the same since I went skiing. Uh, and if, I, if it's up to me, then I'm not ever going to go back. I tried it, I will say that, and I'm glad I tried it, but... I don't know, and she'll tell you the same, I don't know that I was ever actually on my skis for longer than about five seconds at a time. But all part of what made it so frustrating was I was watching her, and we were with two of our friends, and they, were, they made it look so easy, and they kept telling me uh, I couldn't stop. So I'd get going, and I'd realize I was going too fast, try to stop, couldn't stop, so then I'd just plop down on my hip. And I uh, still have injuries from going on this trip, but I would look at them, and they made it look so easy. And they would tell, try to tell me how to stop, and they're like, just, they called it, I think, pizza, pizza stop, whatever. They, just, they would say, just do this with your skis. And I literally got mad. I said, I'm doing that as hard as I can, and I still just keep on flying down the slopes. But they made it look so easy. And so I saw their example of what it was supposed to look like, 
versus my example. And I ended up getting so mad that I, on the middle of a slope, popped my skis off and walked about two miles with those big old boots on back to the lodge and told them to go on and have fun and I'll be there waiting on them. But seeing them helped me to see how, how far I had to go in the sense of being able to ski. Well, sometimes, I said that, I said I was going somewhere. Sometimes I feel like that reading in the book of Acts. You see the example of the, the faithfulness, the devotedness, the endurance, and the commitment of the early apostles while reading in the book of Acts. And I can't help but read, wondering, asking myself, if I would have lived the same way and done the same things and been as faithful if I had been in their shoes. The apostles, the early Christians, they set such a powerful example of what it is to follow Jesus and to believe in Him. And it challenges my life just like them being able to ski with such ease challenged me, but was also so frustrating and helped me to see that I had so far to go in my ability to be able to ski while following and reading after the apostles in the book of Acts helps me to remember and be reminded of the fact that I have so much further to go in my walk with Christ. Because these men, of course, imperfect like you and I, but man, they were faithful. They went through a lot, a lot more than many of us have to go through in following Jesus. But they never turned aside. They never, and even when they did falter, they, as we see Peter is still serving the Lord after his failure. And these men are going through pain and beatings and far away from their home, all for the sake of following Jesus. Well, specifically in studying this text before us, I'm challenged by the relationship that Paul and Silas share with God. And that's why I would title this Relationship Goals. Paul and Silas relate to God in the right way. They carry out a proper relationship with God. So allow me to ask you this morning, is your relationship right with God? The text of Scripture, I think, causes us to ask this question. And through the text, I want to help you answer this question, but to do that, I'm going to ask you two more questions. That if you can answer these in the affirmative, then you can say your relationship is right with God. But if you have to answer these in the negative, then our relationship with God is not right, and it has room to grow. And so first of all, I'm going to ask you this question, do you serve God? Do you serve God? He says in verse number 16, remember we're in Philippi. Paul has just led, at least in previous days, led Lydia to faith in Christ and her whole household to faith. And then the apostles on this journey, this trip, they stayed with her for a night. The Bible says in verse 16, it came to pass as we went to prayer. So this group of missionaries is going to prayer. Well, a certain damsel, so meaning a young girl, a girl who was under the under uh, the was a servant to other men, as it's going to be referred to. Uh, well, this girl was possessed with a spirit of divination, an evil spirit, and this spirit, uh, which she was, this spirit would work through her, speak the future through her, and her masters made money off her. You can imagine their their selling point. We can tell you what your future is going to hold. We can tell you what lies ahead for you. Just give us a hundred dollars, and we'll tell you what's going to happen. Well, this girl comes as they're traveling to prayer, meets them, and she's crying out. These men, in verse number 17, are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And she doesn't just do this once, she doesn't just do this twice, but for many days, it seems as if every time they go to prayer, this lady, 
comes to them and she's crying out, These are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And Paul becomes grieved. Why is Paul grieved? I mean, what she's saying is absolutely true. They are the servants of the Most High God, and they are showing the way of salvation. I think as many writers point out, the reason Paul is grieved is for one, he knows this, this is the result of, of an evil spirit that has possessed this girl. So out of compassion and, and grace in his heart for her, he's grieved that what she's experiencing. He's also primarily, probably more so, grieved at the fact that he don't want people to associate uh, this evil spirit with the gospel, the pure gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he becomes burdened and grieved by the fact that this has taken place. And so he looks at this lady, this young girl, and says, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And then this spirit, this evil spirit comes out of this lady. And Paul, in, in these words, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ, reminds us of a couple of things. Of one, his power over all things. His power over all demonic spirits. His power over everything. But it also reminds us of his uh, backing, if you will, of what Paul is doing. Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and, or Jesus Christ, and then the Spirit comes out reminding us that Paul is not acting outside of God's will, that Christ is supporting, if you will, what Paul is doing and his actions here in these verses. But as I studied these, these three verses in particular, I, was asking, I kept asking myself this question, for whatever reason it came to my mind, what is my identity? In other words, when Paul and his Silas and Luke and Timothy are there and they're traveling, this lady, this, this, this lady possessed, comes to them and says, these are the servants of the Most High God. She tells who these men are. In other words, asking this question, does people know me as a servant of the Most High God? Does people know you as a servant of of the Most High God. What is your identity? Before you answer, I think it's important to remember what a servant is. The Helps Word Study says that uh, servant, says it's used in verse number 17, refers to someone that belongs to another. A servant is someone who has no concern for their own will, but a servant, a true servant, is somebody who's concerned about the will of another. I also read that a servant is someone who has no ownership rights over themselves. They do what is asked of them by the person who is in who is who they are serving. If you're living in this life by serving yourself and doing whatever you want to do at the disregard for what Christ would have you to do, then I can tell you this morning you do not serve God. No matter how much you might say I'm a servant of the living God, no matter how much you do the right things and you try to go to the right places, if you live ultimately to fulfill your own desires and to do your own will, you are not a servant of the living God. You may be sitting here this morning, that does not necessarily make you a servant of the living God. A servant of the living God is one who will concern him or herself with the will of what God wants, not primarily with personal will because our personal will is oftentimes tainted with our sin and tainted with our lostness and rebellion towards God there'll be a lot of times in life where your flesh will want to do other things than what you know Christ would have you to do 
Your flesh will often want to hold on to bitterness that begins to live and exist in your heart, but Christ calls us to lay those things down. Your flesh will often want to live in unbelief and not take God at His Word where the Spirit of God always calls us to put our confidence and our trust in the Word of the Lord. Your flesh will not always want to love your wife as Christ loved the church, but the will of God says to love your wife in that way. Your flesh will not always want to raise your children as you should and be that spiritual leader of your home that you want to be, but in those moments, do you do your will or do you do God's will? I'm not interested today in whether you say you're a servant of the Most High God. I'm interested in whether you live as one or not. Do you read do you read your Bible and then seek to obey the commands of your Master? Do you read your Bible and then seek to carry out what it teaches? To do the will of God rather than what your sin nature would? Do you live as a servant? Why is Paul and Silas and Timothy in a city on a different continent from where they were? It's not because they're following their own wills. It's not because they're doing what they want to do. You remember we read last week, Paul was assured of, uh, from the Lord, assuredly gathered from the Lord in verse number 10. They were to go to Macedonia and preach. That's why they're there. They're not there because of their own will. You remember Paul's will was to go to Bithany and these other places. But God said, go to Macedonia. And that's where Paul is. Paul is a servant of the living God. Where are you at this morning? Not just here, but in what you do in your career. And how you... Lead your house home as a, a household as a father and how you serve in your role as a wife and a mother. Where are you in those areas and why are you there? Why do you act the way you do and live the way you do? Is it in pursuit of being a servant and doing the will of God? Or is it in serving yourself and doing what you want to do? But I want to help you this morning. This was uh, helpful to me. I want to help you find joy in your service. Service is oftentimes something that people look down upon, and especially in our day, the thought of being a servant is foreign to so many. So many want nothing to do with being a servant and, and trying to be there for other people and help other people. But I want to help you find joy in your service today. And the way to find joy in your service is you have to remember who you are serving. You are serving the Most High God. You're not serving the President of the United States. You're not serving a phenomenal athlete. And you're not serving a popular actor. You are serving the God of all the earth who has matchless glory today. It should be our joy to serve Him even as we try to serve other people. We have to remember that ultimately we do that in our service to the Most High God because He has called us to serve other people because serving people may not always be easy. People don't always live in a way that is deserving and worthy of service. So we have to remember we're not serving them ultimately. We're serving the Most High God and He is always worthy of our service. It's easy to start thinking that you deserve to be served rather than being the servant. If you ever get your eyes off the fact that you serve the Most High God, there is none above Him. There is none over Him. He is the Most High. And you and I get to serve Him. When you see Him in that light that He is the Most High, we understand it's easy to see that it's only right of us to serve Him. Because He is the Most High God and we are most lowly as people created by His Almighty Hand. Remember who He is and it will help you find joy in your service.
It'll help you remember on the days when you're like, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to try to be mindful of the needs of others when I have needs in my own life? It's because He's the Most High God and He's worthy of serving. One particular task today that you have, according to the Great Commission as a servant of the Most High God, is to show people the way of salvation. And that's what this lady accused Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy at least, we know, make up this group of men. She said, this is the servants of the Most High God which show unto us the way of salvation. How do we do that? How do we point people to the way of salvation? Of course, that's not pointing people to a particular denomination. That's not pointing people to a particular church. To show people the way of salvation, we must point them to Jesus Christ because He Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but through Him. Tell people about their unrighteousness before God. Tell them that about God's justice and how it must bring wrath upon and judgment upon sin, but then show them how people, show them how they can take refuge in Jesus Christ and find safety in Him. Proclaim unto people that their one and only hope in this life is Jesus Christ. Not everyone at this point had found the way of salvation yet, but these men had. These men knew the way of salvation, and they were going to, it was their desire and their heart to show that way unto others. And I trust this morning that God will increase our desire and our burden to show unto others the way of salvation. If you know Him today, and you know Him to be the one and only way, then it should be our intention and our burden to show unto others just the same way that these men did, that they, there is a way of salvation. To point people in the direction of Jesus Christ. And certainly this morning, if you found yourself in the way of salvation, praise God for that way, because that way has been provided to you by God. You and I could have searched the world over, and you and I, if we would have been left to our own selves, would have never found the way of salvation, which would be the result of us being dead in our trespasses and sins. You and I could have never pioneered our way unto salvation. You and I could have never made a way or path ourselves, but thank God through Jesus Christ, He made us a way, and He made us a way through His Son that He provided. So if you this morning can testify and say that you have found this way of salvation, then praise God for providing His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our salvation and our redemption this morning, because there is no other way. Jesus Christ came and pioneered this way, and without Him, you and I would all be eternally lost. So praise God for our Savior. Remember this this morning. The Bible, the text here, even this lady possessed by a demon says this, which show unto us not a way of salvation, but the way of salvation. There's one way. It's through Jesus Christ. I tell you this morning and urge you to make sure that you're in the way of salvation. There's one way. It's not just by being here this morning. It's not just by holding the Bible in your lap, but it is in Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I also want you to notice one other activity of the servants of the living God that we see in this text, and that is in verse number 16, prayer. True servants of the living God will be people who pray. If you serve Him, you're going to want to talk to Him. Christ is not looking for heartless servants who have no desire to fellowship with Him. 
He's looking for those who will pray and call upon His name. One practical way this morning to live out your faith, one very practical way, is through prayer. In fact, if you don't pray, that's a very, very concerning sign that there is no faith at all. Because if you believe in Him, and if you believe in Him as the Most High God, and if you believe in Him as your help, and your strength, and your refuge, and you see Him in all He's worth, and you see you and all your, yourself and all your unworthiness, it's only going to be natural that you're going to want to call out to Him and pray unto Him and to seek Him. We see that here in these servants of the living God. If these devoted missionaries needed to pray, I assure you, you and I need to pray as well. A mark of servants of the living God will be prayer, fellowship with Him. And I want to also point out to you this morning that you don't serve alone. As I read in these verses, I kept noticing, like in verse 16, it says, we went to prayer. And it says that the spirit of divination met us. And the Bible says in 17, the same followed Paul and us. And when the spirit speaks, she says, these men are servants. There's more than one, there's plural. And in verse number 20, when they've been brought before the magistrates, it's them. It's not just Paul, and it's not just Silas. It's not just Luke and it's not just Timothy, but there's a group of them. There's, there's, a, there's a crowd of them, if you will. And it was a uh, blessing to my heart to be reminded that we don't serve alone. We're not servants of the living God all alone. Value and appreciate your brothers and sisters in Christ, those who serve the living God alongside of you. This trip would have been a lot more lonely and a lot more isolated and a lot more of a challenge for Paul or Silas if they had been on their own, but no, there's a them and there's an us. And I want to remind you this morning that sometimes Satan can make you feel isolated and make you feel like you're all alone, but look around you this morning and be thankful for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are here trying to be faithful and fight the good fight of faith alongside of you. Because I don't know about you, but knowing there's people in this fight with me is encouraging to me. And it's a blessing to me. So be grateful for those who will serve the Most High God with you through the ups and the downs of life. Because Paul and Silas, they all had a group. They had people that were there with them. And you and I do too. So be thankful this morning for the community of believers that you're a part of as a Christian. But then secondly this morning in evaluating how our relationship is with God, not just are we serving Him, but do you worship God? It's hard to read this text and not notice the sin that exists within the narrative that it tells. See the ugliness of greed. When this spirit, this evil spirit came out of this lady, once the demon is gone out of her, there's no celebration, there's no exaltation, there's no rejoicing. These men become furious. I guess now they know they're going to have to get a job or something. They've been taking advantage of this woman, charging people to come and hear what she has to say. I tell you this morning, if you are taking advantage of someone and okay with doing so simply for the sake of profit, then you are guilty of greed. If you're willing to go after someone who hinders your increase in corrupt wealth, then you are covetous this morning. There's greed and evil in your heart, and you should identify it as such, as evil and wickedness and sin and rebellion in your heart towards God. If you would have responded the same way that these men did and God is mad, mad enough to take these men and throw them in prison 
If they had taken away your corrupt means of wealth, then there is greed and sin in your heart. So that's what they did. They saw that the hope of their gains was gone in verse number 19. So they take Paul and Silas. They bring them to the marketplace, which was just like a gathering place. They brought them to the magistrates, and magistrates are just like governors that are set up. I read there's two normally in every Roman colony, which we learned last week Philippi was. They're in charge. The ESV Study Bible explains they're in charge of maintaining order. So this group of men bring Paul and Silas in front of these magistrates, these rulers, and they start charging them, making accusations. These men, in verse number 20, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city. And just for the sake of understanding, the reason they probably only have Paul and Silas is because Luke and Timothy have Gentile in their background. So they were not, they were not fully Jews. So they only get Paul and Silas, which is why the whole group is not taken. It says these men are Jews and they are troubling our city in verses 21 or verse 21. Their accusations continue. They teach customs that are not lawful for us to receive. Neither to observe being Romans. Of course, there's a lot of corruption here and what I studied and read, there's no real trial, there's no defense being able to give provided by Paul and Silas, but their accusations work. So the multitude in verse 22 rise up against them. The magistrates have their clothes taken off and commanded them to be beaten. They laid many stripes upon them. They cast them into prison. And they charged the jailer to keep them safely. And this, this jailer did his job. This jailer took his job seriously. So he, he takes them, he throws them as far into the prison as he can get them. To the most middle parts of the prison. And binds them up. Puts their feet fast in the stocks. He says, if it's my job to make sure they don't get out, then they're not getting out. Which makes what happens in the following verses, I think, that much more impactful when they sure enough get out of prison by the power of God. But to remind you this morning, Paul and Silas and even the group with them, they're not, they're not doing anything heinous. They're not doing anything wrong. They are serving the living God. They're showing people the way of salvation. They're casting demons out of people that have possessed others. They're doing a good work and clearly being used of God. But unfortunately, the world didn't appreciate or value their life. You need to be aware this morning, I need to be aware today, that serving God may not always equal your popularity or appreciation from the world. The world treated Jesus by hanging Him from a tree. So we shouldn't expect to be treated a whole lot different. It's a reminder that you try to live for God while we know it's right, while we know ultimately it will be worth it. It's important to know that the world may not always applaud your godly example and they may not always pat you on the back for doing what Christ wants you to do. Remember, they're only here because this is where God had sent them. But yet they've ended up in prison beaten. Shame, I'm sure, as their clothes have been taken off, they've been beaten. So if you seek to live for God and then trouble comes, don't let that deter you. Scripture never says or teaches that if you live for Him, all trouble, all adversity, all hardship will be removed from your life. But then in verse number 25, 
They've been put in prison. Again, they've been put deep within the prison. They've been beaten. The Bible says that at midnight. Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. If you did not know what Paul and Silas had just been through, they still set a powerful example in verse number 25. Whether Paul and Silas are in a synagogue, whether they're at the Baptist State Convention, or whether they're at a home church gathering, verse number 25 is an example you and I can emulate, you and I can follow. It's a demonstration of worship. It's a demonstration that we often fail to follow or emulate. Of singing the praises of God, I read that it means to celebrate God in song. And you and I need to be constantly reminded this morning that as the Most High God, God is worthy of our praises. And I ask you this morning, do you ever offer those praises to Him? I may this morning may not be able to carry a tune in a bucket, and I may, ne I may ne have no business having a microphone in my hand, but I still yet should sing the praises of God because He has been good to me, He's been kind to me, He's been gracious to me, but even uh, more the, as much as that, it's just who He is, His greatness, His magnificence, His worth and His value. Do I ever sing the praises of God? And do you ever sing the praises of God? Do you ever worship and adore God in a public way? Of course, we never... The Bible's very clear about doing... about worshiping God, about doing acts for God publicly. Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches about the part of the problem of the Pharisees as they did a lot just for the applause in the eyes of men. So don't get me confused with stating that we should do something for how others view us. But what I'm saying to you this morning is the Bible tells us very plain at the end of verse 25, the prisoners did hear them. So they're verbally praising the Lord. Of course, their heart in doing that was not just for the prisoners. They wanted to give God the glory and the honor. Imagine the testimonies that these, the testimony that these prisoners are hearing. Imagine how God is being magnified through the witness of Paul and Silas. These prisoners who likely do not know God, don't, maybe have never heard of the gospel, never heard of Jesus, but they're hearing these men sing praises unto Him. That's why it's important to give God praise verbally. Because it builds, it serves as a testimony to Him and His greatness. But the thing that makes verse 25 so much even more impactful is you do know the situation. They're not at the Baptist State Convention. And they're not in a blessed church service. And they're not in a synagogue. They're in a dark prison. Likely bleeding, hurting, sore, probably have wounds. Doubt there's any heating or air conditioning. Probably not nice comfortable quarters for them to stay in. I don't know what their feeding situation was like. Don't know none of that. But we know they're in prison. But yet the Bible still tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Now, you and I don't often find ourselves in any kind of similar situation that Paul and Silas are in, but still yet we often fail to pray and sing praises unto God. If you were in the exact same situation, if you were in the prison with Paul and Silas, what would the prisoners have heard coming from you? 
Would they have heard grumbling? Would they have heard complaining? Would they have heard silence? Meaning that you had allowed your circumstances to steal your praise. It's easy, I think, for us to understand prayer where, where they are. They're in a mess and they need God's help. Most anybody, whether they pray faithfully or not, if they're where Paul and Silas are at, they're going to pray. But the fact they sing praises to God is what stumps many of us. Because they're not enjoying the, 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 the gifts of, of the, the comfortableness of life, material things. They're in prison and don't have their physical health at the time. You too might be in pain spiritually or physically this morning. But can you still praise God? Can you worship God in the darkness just as well as in the light? If Paul and Silas are on the innermost part of this prison, then it's very likely they are literally in the dark. But maybe spiritually today you're in the dark. And the joy of your heart has been taken and the, the peace and the, the, the prosperity of what it seems with, of your inner soul has been taken. But in those moments, can you still worship God? Can you respond to adversity the way that Job did and say the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Worshiping God just when, he, when it feels like or you feel like He's given you what you want is not true worship. True worship is understanding who God is and adoring Him because of that understanding. God was still the Most High God whether Paul and Silas were in prison or not. God was still full of mercy and grace and truth whether Paul was in prison or on a beach. God is still God even if adversity comes to your life. So we can and must still adore Him. Hard times don't change who God is. So our worship, if it's going to continue in hard times, has to be deeper than just worshiping what God has given us. Not just when He's good to us in the sense of where we sense His goodness. What about when you're in prison and have been beaten for the cause of Christ? Is that going to take away your praise? Hard times certainly shouldn't negate our worship. The Believer's Bible Commentary quoted G. Campbell Morgan who said this, Any man can sing when the prison doors are open and he is set free. But the Christian soul sings in prison. Said this, I think that Paul would probably have sung a solo had I been Silas. I've thought about that a lot this week. I ask you to deal with the same question. Would Paul had to have sung a solo if you were Silas? It's not to minimize the difficulty. It's not to minimize the hardship that life can often bring but to help us to find a biblical place of worship. The hardship don't change who God is. He's still worthy of praise. But to be able to answer both of these questions in the affirmative, do you serve God and do you worship God? You're going to have to live in a spirit of humility. Unfortunately, it's not natural for us, and our lack of humility keeps us from serving and worshiping like we should. 
The serving, as I mentioned, requires us to put the needs of someone else and the wants of someone else above our own. It's humility. Worship requires us, demands of us to recognize that someone has more worth than us, that someone has more value than us. Again, it's humility. Our lack of service and our lack of worship is going to somehow be connected to our pride. So may we learn from the example of Paul and Silas. Let their example act as a suppressor to our pride so that we can do what they did and serve and worship God. As we stand together this morning, our musicians can come around and prepare us a song of invitation. Ms. Tamara, you can begin to play as you find your place there. These are the marks this morning of a proper relationship with God, a relationship where you are carrying out your side of the relationship as you should. I've thought this week and in a relationship, there it takes both people. In a marriage, as friends, both people have to put in effort. Both people have to do their part. I promise you this, God will do His part. He'll never fail you in His end of the deal. Any promises He has made you, He will not fail to keep. But my question for you this morning is, are you, doing, are you carrying out your end of the relationship? Which is to serve and worship Him. Make much of Him and to do His will and not your own. What are people seeing you do and hearing you do? Do they hear you grumble, complain about everything that comes and goes in your life or do they hear the praises of God coming from your lips? When you go through an trial, when you go through an adversity, I promise you there's probably nothing that speaks more highly to people who do not know God to His glory than when you go through hardship and you still sing His praises. When people, not just what are they seeing you do, are they seeing you serve God and showing the way of salvation? But are they hearing you sing praises unto Him, even when you're in the midst of hard circumstances? As Miss Heather comes around and leads us in a song this morning, if you need to come and pray, these altars are open. If you've never entered into the way of salvation, today's a great day for you to enter in. Say, preacher, what is it? Do I have to come to an altar? Do I have to... Uh, do I have to quote something? Do I have to repeat something? You, find, you follow Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Put your confidence and your trust in Him. And you're in the way of salvation. As Miss Heather leads us, you respond to the Word of the Lord if He's dealt with you. Thank you for listening. Please remember to drop a rating and subscribe to get our latest audio.